What's up, homies? <laughs> now I know this is the last Thursday in August. I don't know nailed what it. the hell happened. To nailed me. it. You nailed it. I mean, too much French toast. Thursday, August 25th, Guy Adami here. Dan Nathan on the other side of the glass, as they say. Today's market call is brought to you by CME Group, Dan, where risk meets opportunity. You'll notice that EY from SoFi is not joining us today. We had her earlier in the week, and she will be on the On The Tape podcast, which drops in your favorite podcast store tomorrow. But I'm telling you now, we're putting 30 on the clock because at 131, I'm 5,000. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well, guy. You're a little fired up here. I am got- always, when, listen, when am I not fired up? When well, am I not fired there up? There you right? go. I mean, you, th- this is like, this is the week of the summer where I think your your attitude goes from just kind of a summary disposition to just for whatever reason. Turn in the just, dial. It's turning the dial. You're going to 11 here. You got Jay Powell. He's got all of his central bank cronies. They're out there in Jackson Hole. They're probably doing a little fly fishing. They're probably doing a whole heck of a lot of stuff that you'd like to be doing in Jackson Hole, except one thing is what are they going to do here? I mean, like, listen, this is the debate, right? I mean, I, I look, we have to talk about it. Most Americans, 99% of them don't give you know a crap about what these guys and gals are doing out there. But, you know, like it's kind of going to move markets here. So let's talk about it. Like Amanda threw up a bunch of headlines here. You see it. It's Bloomberg. It's FT. It's CNBC. It's Bloomberg again. I mean, they're all saying they're trying to gain this. What is your takeaway here? We have a market that's generally, you know, what, down three or so percent from those highs last week. I think obviously interest rates going higher, the dollar going higher. That's one of the things that's been weighing on uh, the S&P here. But we also have a scenario where, you know, some of the growth data is not great guys so you have this kind of we're back at this kind of stagflationary environment right no question i mean i, I don't want to play stock market here necessarily no no why why don't wait wait why don't you want to play stock market i want to play stock market okay, i have we'll some play, we'll play i, stock I market. have some positions that are, are kind of hurting me here i was playing for a press into the close on friday mm-hmm. you know via the s p 500 here so let's play stock market okay I'll, I'll do i'll play the game with you i think you're going to be <laughs> rewarded for that and really in terms of this is it's on Fast Money today's Thursday. So Tuesday night on Fast Money, the lead was the Fed's conundrum, right? The nightmare before Jackson Hole is what I deemed it. And the nightmare is as follows. I mean, housing and the softening economy, which is probably something they want. The problem is the sticky stuff on the other side of things, food inflation, energy inflation, yeah. is not going away. And that's a really tough thing to navigate around. And I think that's what they're trying to do. I'll say this. The fact that they even trot out a Neil Kashkari, who was the dove of doves, who has now come out and said, hey, wait a second, A, we got it wrong, and B, we really need to fight this, and that's what our mandate's going to be, to get inflation down to our target level. I mean, I think that speaks volumes. So what I hear, and maybe it's my dogma, I don't know, but I don't hear a dovish Fed. I don't hear a Fed that's about to pivot or pause. I hear a Fed and the officials around the Fed that say, you know what? Our mandate is such that we have to do what's necessary to fight inflation. And even if you listen to the interview Steve Leisman had on this morning, I mean, she spoke to exactly that. I mean, inflation is still a problem. So my opinion is you're going to hear a decidedly hawkish tone, which the market will not like, specifically given the fact that the S&P has gone from 3635 at its low in mid-June to north of 4300 recently. So that run makes the market vulnerable to those types of uh, comments, I think. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, let's was just a good look, answer. Yeah, no, it's great. We're playing stock market. Let's play bond market and then we'll go back to playing stock market. Look at the 10 year U.S. Treasury. yield played some very serious catch up here, guy, to that two year. Right. So the two years at three point three six. The 10 year, I think it was as high as three eleven um, yesterday. It's come off a little bit here. You see some lines that I drew on this chart. And again, obviously, the two year is reflective of what the Fed might do near term. Right. And so the CME Fed watch tool is pricing now about a 60% chance of a 75 basis point hike at the September meeting. That's what I think a lot of market participants are expecting to get better color on. And you mentioning what Neil Kashkari had to say is really important because here's a guy that before that they pivoted in November, right? He was basically the dissenter was, I don't know if he's the loan dissenter, but he's saying we got to stay dovish here. And so now if you think about the 10 year yield, if we throw that chart back up there, guy, you know, that looks like a bit of a head and shoulders top. And you've talked a lot about the volatility we've seen. If we were to see yields come back in towards 3%, that recent low or so, or as, as low as 2.5% where we were at the start of this month, man, what would that say to you? And then we'll get to the stock market. What would it mean if we were to go retest that sort of neckline down there at okay, 2.5%? So Two-part question, which I like. So I'm going to answer. I'm going to do this correctly. If What it would say to me is the economy is definitely slowing. And yeah. although inflation is still a problem, the slowing economy is going to manifest itself in a bond market and yields that top out where we are now and head lower. And that chart, I mean, listen, that could be a chart in Apple, that could be a chart in yeah. Caterpillar. I mean, that is potentially a major, well, not a major, but a pretty significant head and shoulders given the duration. This goes back, I think, to April or so. So that answers that question. So a move down to two and three quarters makes a lot of sense. The second part of the question is what will stocks do on the back of it? I think for a lot of these techie growth names, they'll probably like lower 10-year yields, but they'll like it for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, Again, lower interest rates are typically bullish for the market, but I think when people wrap their head around that you have slowing growth, I mean, yeah. look at the Salesforce numbers. I mean, you probably talked about it last night. Things are slowing down. There's no two ways about it. Slowdown means slower earnings. Means, it means, in my opinion, it means margins contract. And stocks on the back of it should go lower. So I hope that answers your question. No, it does. And 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 again, just one other thing. Maybe you know my my lines that I draw those little curves. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe we go and we blast through three and a half percent. Maybe the reason. All right. So let's play that game. I don't mean to interrupt. So let's, let's say your it. lines are wrong. I'm here for and, you. And they blast to three and a half percent. That's not going higher because the economy is getting better. Right. Historically, rates going higher suggest that the underlying economy is doing better. Well. Anything, it couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, in fact, the economy is getting worse. And that's not me being political here. I mean, that's just is what it is. So if 10 year yields were to go to 3.5% again, it's not suggestive of a robust economy. It's suggestive that inflation is a real problem that I didn't think the market realizes. Yeah, matter of fact, I'm with you on that one. All right, real quickly though, here, guys. So, uh, you know, August, we're turning the page here. You, you uh, got all great those. Bob Seger song. Uh, well, there by the you way, go. not to. I mean, you hate it when I do this. 1997, oh. I think Metallica, which is your favorite band, released not an album of covers, yeah. and one of the covers was "Turn the Page" by Bob Seger. They actually did it really well. 
I, I can't tell you how much I actually dislike heavy metal and, and Metallica, you know, it's just not my jam. And, and I think, you know, that just needles the crap out of me every yeah. time you say that. Um, let's, let's talk. This is from Yardeni Research. Oh. Ed Yardeni. Well, this is a Bloomberg headline. Uh, Rowdy Summer Stock Bulls catching the scent of an autumn reaping. We know the data about September. It's not a great wait month. You could kind of quote Green Day, rake me up when September ends. You know the whole drill here, guy. Let's look at these s futures here a little bit. We've been talking about them. Pretty simple. You see the downtrend. You see where that 200-day moving average is. You see where we topped out, you know, last week. We came in 4% at the lows as of, I think, yesterday morning. They're trying to kind of rally here a little bit. But as far as I'm concerned, man, if they were to rally out of this Jackson hole, okay, I think it gets rejected at that X, which is also that 200-day moving average that is declining. And then it really sets up, to me, as an even better short into September. We will see some pre-announcements, in my opinion. Okay, we're going to talk about Salesforce and what they had to say in a few minutes here. I just think Q3 is not going to end on a high note as it relates to all of the inputs that a lot of companies have to deal with or that they are dealing with as it relates to the visibility about their business and the sorts of pressure that they have on their margin. So that's my take on the S&P futures. You talk to me about that, those levels right there, guys. So watch what I do here because you're going to like this, I think. And we don't script these things, by the way. Um, But far be it for me to call Ed Yardeni an American idiot because he's anything but. That's my green. Wow. Day. How did we? First of all, I, I'm shocked that you know the 2004 American Idiot album. Seriously, because you were in your 50s back then, and I don't think that they were on your pre-Spotify playlist. It was probably your Napster playlist back then. And, the, and they don't find their way onto my now 765 song Spotify playlist. But yeah. I am familiar with the album. Some people call it. Uh, the most important album released in the last uh, 50 years. I mean, wow. Whatever. Seriously? I mean, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm down with it. People. Okay. I but love what I will say that smell is not, you know, it's not a robust economy. It's more smells like teen spirits. So right. what I did there. That's Dan. from the 1991 ever, uh, nevermind album from Nirvana. There you go, guy. I mean, Look I'm at just that. Tying all the, I mean, again, just so you know, so nevermind came out September, I think 26 or so 1991. It was my first month of college. Okay. And that was like, you know, obviously just changed the game that Pearl Jam's 10 came out in August. I think, I think we're actually heading up to the 31 year anniversary. Does that sound right? Of, of all of these of 10 and then uh blood sex magic from uh the red hot chili peppers also that month how about that buddy that's a great job black is a great song by the way it is a great song it's a a great song but now i'll play the game and answer your question i mean look there's obviously there's a lot of reasons to be bullish in the back half of the year i get it are there wait wait wait. are there like what what are they i'll tell you what they are the fed is gonna they they have their arms around inflation commodity prices are going lower um, China zero COVID policy is going to go away. Yeah. There's gonna, the reopening trade is going to be all those things. I mean, there are a number of different valuations are compelling. I mean, I can list them and you know they're out there. I okay. just don't happen to agree with any of them. I do. I personally, I think we already did the test of the 200-day moving average like we did back in April, and you saw what happened then. So I think, and I've been pretty consistent on this, I think the next leg is lower. Now, do we get to 3,400? That's my ultimate target without question. I think the first stop has to be in the form of 4,000, which is effectively a retrace of the low we just made in yeah. June and this recent high north of 4,300. So that makes a little bit of sense to me. We'll see what happens when we get there. But again, just doing the math on the back of this, we've heard from a number of companies in a variety of different industries that are all telling 
the same story. And that story is, guess what? Things are slowing down. And quite frankly, even the companies whose stocks rallied on the back of earnings, if you really go and look at those earnings releases, they were not suggestive of robust growth, anything but they were suggestive of a huge relief rally and a huge sigh of relief that they weren't seeing demand destruction yet. But that's coming to a theater near you. Yeah, no, I agree with that. All right, let's talk a little bit about these NASDAQ futures here. Again, I think it's interesting that um, they did kind of overshoot a little bit of that downtrend, if you draw that line from early January to late March. Um, but guy never got to his 200 day moving average. And here it is. It's kind of contending with a mini level here at 13,000. You know, traders like nice round numbers here. And I guess. Now, forget, you know, we don't have to say much about this one here. Maybe we see 12,000. We talked about it. Um, that would kind of be the next stop, um, if you will. But to your point about some of the earnings guy that we've seen, and just last night in particular, you know, Salesforce, and I thought this was really interesting, the quote that, um, you know, caught my eye while I was on Fast Money and the news was coming out, CEO or co-CEO Brett Taylor said that they're seeing a more measured buying environment. And this is a company that, okay, they sell licenses, they sell seats, right, to stacks of, of, of software. And if unemployment is going to go higher, and we're seeing a lot of tech companies um, lay people off, we haven't seen much of an acceleration of that. But I'm going to tell you this, I'm talking to a lot of different corporates, executives in general across tech, and the ones that haven't made cuts yet, guy, are really strongly thinking about it, getting mm -hmm. in front of it. They don't have great visibility. They have pressure on their margins. Companies that are losing money right now have no choice otherwise. And that will weigh on a sales force. And then on the flip side of it, you know, Snowflake. And this is one we talked about, I think, earlier in the week, trading 25 times sales or a little more now. They blew the doors off. It's up 20%. But just in market cap terms, okay, Snowflake's up about what Salesforce is down. Salesforce yeah. is a much bigger company. So talk to me a little bit about one dog going one way, one dog looking the other way, and you're saying what? Well, the, I would say the more what's what's more important dog. I mean, it's the dog closest to the guy rowing the boat or steering yeah. the the yeah. helm there, and that's the guy that's like, "What do you want from me?" Yeah. And you know, he looks like Billy Bats. But yep. the more important stock, in my opinion, is Salesforce. Listen, Snowflake's a great company. You just talked about the move that we've seen, but the one that I think, and this is again not my dogma talking. Uh, the one that tells a bigger story, a more important story is Salesforce. So more measured buying, that's a code word for people being more discerning and then just throwing money, uh, the, you know, this available money we had when cash was cheap. In terms of garnering and trying to figure out what's going on in the economy, I still think Salesforce is a more important company than Snowflake. Yeah, no, I think that makes uh, some sense there. And we gave the reasons for it. When you think of those revenue bases, the customers that they touch and the sort of things that they're going to be able to extrapolate about buying decisions. Let's look at the IGV guy. This is the software ETF that tracks um, enterprise software. The biggest names, you know what they are, Microsoft, Salesforce, each about 8 9% or so each, Adobe, Intuit, Oracle, ServiceNow. And, you know, this kind of goes back to when Bill McDermott, you know, he, he kind of mm -hmm. sounded the alarm a little bit on enterprise spending. This was over a month ago. He was on Jim Cramer's show. ServiceNow really got nailed at the time. And it's interesting that ServiceNow recovered and the stock you know, had moved uh, higher and filled in that entire gap, but has since moved lower, guy. And, and it's right back to those sorts of levels. When you look at this IGV, though, you know, this looks like Adobe. It looks like Microsoft. It looks like some of those big components here. Never got to its 200-day moving average. Did have a very steep rise. We see that it broke that uptrend here. And it's sitting right 
right on its 100-day moving average. I got to tell you, Adobe is going to report next month, I think in about two weeks or so, guys. That's going to be big for this sector. If they were to sound the alarm, and then just real quickly, I'd love for you to your take on that. Look at this Microsoft chart. Got yeah. rejected to the penny at its 200-day. You see where it is. It feels like 260 is easily in the offing here. Thoughts on the space? I agree. And this is not being dogmatic again. I was surprised, just for context, when Microsoft reported after the bell, the stock closed around 254. They reported numbers which were not good by Microsoft standards. The stock was trading 242. It reversed when they talked about not seeing any demand destruction and was off to the races from that point. But again, you look at it, it did exactly what it needed to do on the upside, traded up to 200, they failed. I think people are going to come to the realization that although they didn't see demand destruction that quarter, it's just a matter of time before they do. And then you're talking about a stock, great company that's probably expensive in this environment. In terms of some of these other names, you're 100% right. ServiceNow, I mean, again, is it an important company? Yeah, but it's the dialogue. It's it's the what you heard from Bill McDermott, the CEO who has been doing this a long time. That does not resolve itself. It does not heal itself in a quarter. It takes a lot longer time. And I think you would admit that as well. So yeah. I think the entire space probably got ahead of itself to the upside, a re- relief rally in a classic sense. But I think valuations are going to matter. And I think the IGV and Microsoft trend lower from here. All right, we got to hit this one here. We've been we've been tracking crude. Carter's had a mm. call on it. We talked about it a little earlier, but from a fundamental standpoint, um, Paul uh, Sankey, who comes on Fast Money an awful lot. I know you are a huge fan of Paul. Big I don't fan. know him personally, but I do really like his work. Um, this was Market Insider saying OPEX production cuts could push oil prices to one fifty. Paul Sankey says. Um, is that line up with what you thought? And hey, I wanted to be really clear. Yesterday when we were talking about crude with Carter, I said, you know, his charting must be kind of music to your ears because you've laid out a fundamental case why you think the uh, oil goes higher even in the face of weaker demand, let's say, you know, and all the uncertainty around what's going on with energy um, in Europe. But what I said to you is like the technicals now really line up with your fundamental view. And if you throw this crude chart up here, I mean, it is pretty remarkable where crude stopped about a week and a half ago, which was the November high, the breakout level in January. And as Carter would say to the penny, now Mm -hmm. it is contending guy right now with that 200 day moving average, despite it having broken out above the downtrend. So Give me your take right here. All right, so I, I'm not. This is not correcting you, but you chose the word weaker demand, and I totally understand why yeah. I would use that word um, because economies are slowing down. The problem with that is we're not seeing weaker demand. As a matter of fact, you know, demand really hasn't gone away despite slowing economies. And I think one of the bench, one of the pillars of the bear case, which by the way was working until recently, was the fact that you're going to see demand destruction and. It makes sense in terms of economies that are slowing, but we're not seeing it. Like the data does not suggest yet, at least, you're seeing the demand destruction. And I think that's important because it has been a supply demand thing for quite some time. And we are at pre-COVID demand levels. And in terms of supply, it's just not there. I mean, you heard Paul Sankey on Fast Money talk about it. They just, it's not about wanting to get it out. There's just none to get out there. So, and if OPEC were to say, you know what? We're happy with the price here. You start seeing supply cuts out of them, and that lines up. By the way, you're also coming into these crazy winter months and stuff. You're going to talk about hurricane season soon. So 
for me, listen, I didn't think it was going to get down to 85, clearly. And you were spot on with that one. But I do think there's a leg higher here. Okay. Well, 150 would be new high. I don't know about you... 150. I mean, yeah. that's like, I mean, yeah, no, I got you. $50 oil. Like, I don't know. I don't know what's happens with 150. I mean, I'm not trying yeah. to deviate here. No, I got you. $150 oil. You think about what that does to this Fed narrative. I mean, that really screws the pooch a bit. Yeah. I, I, I listen, you know, I don't know this energy space like you do. Um, I just, in my lifetime, I just couldn't see this you know, happening based on everything I know about all the supply demand dynamics and what we think about the global economy. Because again, guy, you could say, well, maybe we're just at peak demand in this cycle for crude right here. Because if everything else that we've been talking about here on Market Call pans out for a weaker economy, I just don't know how you don't see demand um, destruction. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting, we hit this with Carter a lot. You know, we just said to the penny where it just kind of found support. Look at the U.S. dollar. Look at the Dixie index here. Okay. Look and see where it has bounced off of that uptrend, right? That has been in place. And when it bounces off that uptrend, it has some pretty violent rallies. Look at that little mini double top that we're seeing mm -hmm. just over the last, you know, month and a half or so here. Your thoughts on the dollar, because the way I think about stronger dollar, and it's a runaway right here, right? And crude has come down. I think that that is um, obviously a relationship that is held fairly constant over a very long period of time. I go back to 2013, 14, 15, when the Fed was coming off zero interest rate and they were starting to basically taper QE and then go to QT. Well, crude oil got killed and the dollar rallied, rates rallied, um, and that was the other half of it. So is there a scenario where the dollar is really weighing or the dollar strength is really weighting on the price of crude? That's a great call. I'm clearly, a stronger dollar is a headwind for sure, but I don't think it stops the move. It might slow down the move, but that's just my opinion. And clearly, you know, there's some bias inherent in that. In terms yeah. of the dollar, I mean, if you think about what's going on in Europe, we talk about it all the time. You know, the Eurozone, if you were to basically make that one country, it's the largest economy in the world. Um, I think GDP close to $40 trillion, 440 million or so people. Uh, it dwarfs the United States. Look what's going on in Europe now. So at a certain point, I'm bringing that up because as much as I'm sure they want to raise rates to fight inflation, I mean, their their economy is cratering over there. So their central bankers are a little screwed, which means that the dollar, which is, I think, 60% comprised of the euro, if they start to go the other way and start to be accommodative again, that's going to be extraordinarily bullish for the dollar on top of a Fed that's trying to fight the inflation we have here. So to answer your question, yeah, we've taken a pause here in the Dixie, but I think it's going to be a short-lived pause. Carter had a great call a few months ago saying there was a very consensus trade. It probably pulls back. That's exactly what happened. We actually both thought the same thing, but I think this next leg higher is, I don't want to say full-throated, but we're getting damn close. All right. Um, you know, if we talk about the dollar, we kind of, kind of have to talk about your baby. That would be gold. You used oh. to trade it back in the day. Um, talk to us a little bit about that for a second here, guys. So when you were trading gold back in the day, how closely were you watching its relationship to the dollar? Was that mm -hmm. just like a major input or what, like what were, what were, what's really changed since then? How you think about the dollar? Obviously yeah. back then we didn't have central banks doing the sorts of things that they were doing. Um, but you know, thoughts here, because I drew a couple lines 
You see that double top going back to 2020. You see what is hopefully a double bottom if you were long of gold at these levels here. But the lines, you know, there's a pretty big range here, and it's not too far below where gold is trading right now. If we break, there's no real support until, what, 1,500 or something like that? Yeah, and look, it does not look particularly good. But I'll answer your question again. What were we watching? We were watching currencies. Well, yeah. We were watching them, but currencies didn't move then. In the 80s and the 90s, if you saw a 2% move over the course of a couple months, people were doing back handsprings. <laughs> it, it's, it's currencies. Yeah. You didn't have the currency moves that you have today. So it was an important input, clearly, but it wasn't on top of mind because they, they basically never moved. So you're looking at other things. You look at central bank demand. You're looking at what miners were doing. Were they hedging? Were they buying back hedges? Those types of things. Um Physical market is really tight. That's been the ball argument for a while. Central banks are hoarding gold, ball argument for a while, but it hasn't manifested itself in the price. And unfortunately, I think the reason why gold can't get out of its own way, people will say inflation's out of control, gold should be higher. It was higher when the Fed wasn't doing anything about inflation. It's lower now that they're trying to combat it. And if you think of it through that lens, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, again, you know, I don't have a strong view on gold. It ends up being a pretty good trading vehicle. Looking at the GLD as far as option terms, they're usually generally really cheap relative to other macro assets. So every once in a while, you know, I will definitely express a directional view um, using options in the ETF, but the futures trade very liquid and you could use stops there. So that's why we draw a lot of lines for mm. some of you guys who are active traders and like to use stops. Um, all right, let's hit one thing here um, on the Bitcoin. It's kind of related to all of this, Guy. I mean, I just put up a multi-year chart here going back to the start of 2020. And I got to tell you, man, this chart looks horrible, okay? Mm -hmm. like, like, just if, if you took the name off of it and you didn't have any preconceived ideas about about the Bitcoin. Wouldn't you say this thing looks really heavy? That that line at 20,000, that's just because it's a psychological level. That was the high in 2017. It was the level in late 2020 where it broke out and then went straight to 60,000. Thoughts here on Bitcoin, because I think you also think that there's there, there could be a move in this thing and a violent one if the Fed does something that a lot of people are expecting them to do in the not so distant future. Yeah, back um, during Prohibition, we used to, as kids, we used to, get these things called soap boxes yeah. and make like go so I'm going to get on my stand on one yeah, yeah yeah I'm going to get on my soap box here for a minute if you allow me and we've talked about this but I think it's important to bring up again uh, personally I think bitcoin was born out of this concern for central bankers run amok and that's why it was created and if you look the run up in bitcoin made a lot of sense at the height of central bank absurdity that's when Bitcoin really got into ascension. It's not coincidence, Dan, and we've talked about this, that Bitcoin topped out in November, precisely almost to the day that this Federal Reserve decided they're going to pivot. And that makes sense. The recent bounce that we saw from 17.5 to, what, 24,000 or so, mm -hmm. that makes sense as well because it coincided with the fact that the, maybe the Fed had overplayed its hand and maybe they were going to pause or pivot. And Bitcoin rallied on the back of that. Now, Bitcoin coming back to earth to me suggests that the market thinks this Fed is going to stay, basically, uh, stay the course. So for me, Dan, all Bitcoin is is an overlay of what you think the Federal Reserve is going to do. So I will yeah. tell you that if the market interprets whatever they say is hawkish, Bitcoin's going lower. 
Yeah, and you know what's funny though, and you know this, you know these cycles that we've seen, and there's just you know over exuberance, and there was obviously clearly a whole heck of a lot of it in the entire crypto space. I feel like it almost has to get really nasty before it can start mm -hmm. to get better. Based on I think the what you laid out there and thinking of it as a macro asset in those terms is a, a way that a lot of people who are long of it and and really do see a future for it, right? That's what they're kind of pinning their hopes on, but it doesn't. Feel Feel like we've hit capitulation yet is really kind of the point that I would make there. So again, I'm not a buyer, and I think I said it on market call last week. You know, in May I started buying ETH again, and I bought it all the way down from 2100 to 900, and that is not a great feeling, people, when you start doing that. But when it got back to 2000 last week, you know, I sold most of that. I just don't feel that's a great trade here either. There's this consensus idea that the merge from proof of work to proof of stake, which should be completed um, at some point in September. I'll just tell you this. It's been a bull case for two years and it's been pushed out. So to me, it seems like everybody's in it for the same thing and I just don't like it here. So that's my quick take. All right, guy, one last thing here. Yeah. We talked by, about- By the way, wasn't the merge a band with like Dave Grohl? That's the other guy you like, right? Oh my God. It was Nirvana. It oh, was uh, Foo sorry. Fighters. I'm actually reading his book, The Storyteller, and it's really interesting. Sorry. He spends a little time because he was the drummer in Nirvana, right? And then he, um, you know, Kurt Cobain um, passed in 1994, and then he started a new band, Foo Fighters, and he um, actually was a frontman, a guitarist, and he found this amazing guitarist named Taylor Hawkins who just passed, and they were like best friends. And it was really interesting because a big thread through that book, guy, is just loss and, and, and and how you kind of reposition yourself. And it just strikes me as I'm reading it right now that he's going to have to write a whole heck of a lot more to finish that thing off. So very sadly, Taylor Hawkins, you are missed. Um, okay, guy, I just bummed you out there a little bit, didn't I? That was, um, that was deep, though. By the way, he's in the Hall of Again, I'm sorry. Dude. Oh. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with two bands, though, right? The yes. Food Fighters and Nirvana. The, the Food Fighters. Are you, a, are you a David Letterman fan? I Were was you? when he was at his. You know, you know, yeah. you know. Foo Fighters played him out. Um, the last five minutes of his last show, I think it was probably back in 2015 or 16. Does that sound right? Wow. He was a huge Foo Fighters fan and uh, huge Pearl Jam fan. You just mentioned Black. It's a great story that Dave inducted Pearl Jam into um, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he told this story that back in 1991, when 10 came out, or it was probably early 92 by that point, when it was released as a single, you know, Letterman used to come on every night and go, and he used to say to Paul Schaefer, the band leader, he'd like, you got to get those guys on. You know, those guys from Seattle. Every night he did it. And Eddie said, this is really funny, and Eddie said he used to go home every night and he would like turn on Letterman. He was a little high. And all of a sudden, Letterman would be going, do 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 do, like, like, you know, like humming him his song. And he was kind of like freaked out. And finally, he's like, all right, I got to go. I got to go on that show and stop this because I can't watch the show that I love. So that's so good. No, you listen, like, is that really so good? Or no, it is it? Is. Like, it's great. Yeah. I think it's great. It's two, it's two worlds colliding. And yeah. I think that's the beauty. But of did it. you like um, your musical? Like, like, you have a lot of your classic rock guys, obviously, a lot of the bands that, the, the, they were, you know, defunct by the time Letterman was around. But did you like seeing your bands do that no. sort of stuff? Or go, you, no. you hate you don't like them on SNL when they go no, on SNL? Definitely not. I you mean, REM I think did SNL. I mean, yeah. think about it. It started with the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, yeah. and it's just like I don't know. I feel like you're selling out a little bit. That's again, 
now you have people, you have artists selling their libraries for anywhere from two hundred fifty yeah. million to six hundred million dollars. So everybody's a sellout. Yeah, but think about it though, guy. You know, before the internet, I mean, the way to reach a mass audience. If you were a UK band and you were coming here, and that's obviously the story of the Beatles going on Ed Sullivan. You know, you know, at that point, half the households in America were watching TV every night. You know what I mean? So again, you know, like I get it a little bit here, buddy. But I don't think they're like selling out. I don't no. know. You think maybe we should out? get maybe maybe Eddie will come on on the tape. That would be. Fun. I would love that. You know, you know, you you know, I am such a Pearl Jam fan guy. Next weekend, I am going to Ottawa, Canada, to see Pearl Jam. Do you think that's weird? Yes, I think going to Ottawa for anything is weird. I think people in well, Ottawa listen, would think. Listen, that's give weird. a shout out to our viewers from Ottawa because I don't think that's going to go over particularly uh, well. Listen, you know, I tell it like it is. By the way, the Ottawa Senators, great hockey franchise. Yeah. Listen, what they're doing in the off season—they've really stacked some talent there. They're top six. I'll put them up against anybody. You didn't have that on your freaking bingo card, people. But that's it. That's a that's a market call that was interrupted by a power outage by me yeah. going off the rails. By Dan Nathan in black, like Johnny Cash. No, I want to thank our sponsor, CME Group, where risk and fact meets opportunity. We're powered by Open Exchange. If you enjoy what you hear, like us, send a video, leave a comment, do all those things. A lot of you do. And we try to respond to all of them. And I appreciate it. I know Dan does as well. We're not going to be here tomorrow because it's Friday. Hopefully, we'll be somewhere. We won't be here, but we'll be back on Monday and we will be talking all things. Federal Reserve. Later. Later.